turn with me and let's look at this text together. Romans chapter 15, verses 7 to 13. Paul writes, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Well, the theme of this passage is hope. And hope is something that we all need. And this text shows us where that hope can be found. Hope is the engine that drives our soul. I love how Tim Keller says, when our connection to that future, this lived-in future, becomes a living thing in our lives, and we have this kind of hope, it so changes us that the Bible talks about it in terms of dying and rising. Hope is the engine that drives your life. But we have a tendency to underestimate hope. We don't give it its due. My proposition, the thesis of this this morning, is that how we live now, in the present, is completely determined by what your future will be. But something else, hope can be misguided. You can have misguided or misplaced hope. Let me give you an example. Our two dogs, Gracie and Maggie. Now, Gracie is the oldest. She knows better. So when she sees, take this morning, for example, she sees Evie getting ready. She sees both of us getting ready, and she'll see Evie grab her purse, grab her sweater, grab the keys, whatever. She knows that Evie and I are getting ready to go out, and she, she goes usually head down, looking, woe is me, depressed and sad, she goes to her crate. She knows we crate the dog. We're not going to give them the free. There's only limited freedom you're giving those two dogs. But she goes head down to her crate, and she gets in. Maggie, I'm afraid, is another story. She is still a puppy. Now, she knows she's going to her crate, but her hope is misguided. She thinks, if I just get another toy and bring it to Daddy, or if I lick him enough, or if I run around and go crazy, or maybe if I just hide in a corner, somehow I won't be crated. But as hopeful as she might be, that her hope, her hope though, is without foundation. It is a misguided hope. She is still going in that crate. I hope, when Evie, I hope this isn't a misguided hope. When Evie and I get home this afternoon, those dogs better be still in their crate, or we have big problems. See, we need a true hope, but it has to be a true hope. Where can we find a true hope? This text, Paul tells us two things. He's going to give us a foundation for a true hope, and then the faithfulness of God for that true hope. 
See, I know we have a congregational meeting, so I made it only a two-point sermon. Don't you like that? I'm trying to be sensitive and thoughtful. The foundation of hope. Look with me at verse 7. And we should just camp here for a while. This to me, I don't give you memory verses often, but you ought to memorize this because this is absolutely incredible. It says, therefore, welcome one another, which means accept one another. Here's the part that ought to blow you away. As Christ has welcomed or accepted you. Now, I, we have to just pause there. Think about that. As Christ has accepted you. Truthfully, that's the foundation of our hope, and that is also the foundation for everything. In the original context and meaning, Paul has been pleading with the church at Rome to be unified with each other. And he's giving them the foundation of this hope so that these people who think differently, who have different cultures, who have different preferences, who have different opinions on everything, who have approached life differently, who have lived life differently, can come together. And that foundation is the acceptance of Christ. He exhorts them, accept one another, meaning bring each other into your homes, into your hearts, into your families, receive one another as Christ has received you. So now we have to ask the question, how has Christ received us? How has Christ received us? Commentators point out that throughout the letter to the Romans, there's been kind of this tension. And the tension goes like this. Is Christianity, our relationship to God, primarily an individual thing, or is it a community thing? Does it have a personal focus, or does it have a communal focus? Let's all answer this together. Yes. It's a both and. I love how one commentator put it. He said, there is often a tension between the personal focus and the community focus, but both are clearly presented in Romans. Both, make, Paul makes clear, are intrinsic to the gospel because it's through the good news of Jesus Christ that God is both transforming individuals and forming a community. What God wants is to have people formed by the gospel into communities that reflect the values of the gospel. The gospel is always a both and. It confronts the rugged individualism that is so rampant in our culture, but it requires individual transformation and has a very personal focus that is necessary for the development of a God-glorifying, God-praising, God-worshipping community. And what is the foundation of that hope? It is the welcome, the acceptance of God in and through Christ. The glories in the gospel with the realities that come through our faith in Christ, our union with Christ, the great doctrines of justification by faith alone, and the wonder that we are adopted. What does it mean that God has welcomed us, accepted us? We are adopted into his family. That we are the children of God through faith in Christ. We need to understand and learn to appropriate these realities in our lives. This is where the personal focus leads to the communal transformation. See, we give ourselves, I'm going to try to get a little personal here with us, we give ourselves way too much credit. We think way too highly 
of ourselves in our understanding of the gospel. We walk around and we say, oh, we believe the gospel. That's the basics. We understand the gospel. But friends, if we truly did, if we understood it, there would be much more renewal. Renewal in our church, renewal in our families, renewal in our community. We need to admit that we don't fully understand or believe the gospel. We don't understand, and we definitely do not appropriate the glories, the wonders of being accepted by God and adopted into his family. Let me ask you a, kind of in the way of application, a personal question. I want you to ask yourself and think about this and be honest. Here's the challenge. Ask yourself, how do I come across to other people? How do other people perceive me? That doesn't mean how I say I come across to other people. Oh, I know how I think I come across to other people. No. It's how do they perceive me? Do I come across as accepting, as a place where people can be safe, as a place where people are free to be themselves? See, how can we understand? We, we kind of have a love-hate relationship with this idea of acceptance. We all struggle with the issue of acceptance. None of us, deep down, really feels like he's okay, good enough, adequate, sufficient. We strive in all sorts of ways to be acceptable. We strive for what the Bible calls a righteousness. We strive to be good enough, and we strive to be good enough on our own. Jack Miller, years ago, put it this way. He says, repentance has nothing to do with what we've done. Rather, repentance is our coming undone in respect to all human righteousness. See, we say we receive God's acceptance, and I know at one level we do. That's what brings us salvation. But at another level, we really don't, because if we received acceptance, then God could ask us anything. I remember Tim Keller saying one time, he was counseling a woman, and he asked this woman directly about her receiving grace. And she said, right now, she says, if I really accept grace, if I accept what the Bible says, if I accept that I'm fully and completely accepted by God, sheerly by grace, I contribute nothing to it, then God can ask anything of me. And you want to know something? She was right. See, we're allergic to God, we're allergic to grace, and we're allergic to change. And so therefore, we have to keep things at a distance. We have to keep grace and the wonders of God's acceptance at a distance. But I want us to think about it this way. What does it mean to be accepted by God? And I heard this illustration years and years ago, but it's a great way to understand these beautiful doctrines of justification and adoption. Big $34,000 words will try to boil down to a simple illustration. Pretend that you are an accused defendant. You've been accused of the crime of sinner, which means not acceptable, condemnable, 
not approvable, not good enough. That's your crime. And now the day of your trial has come and you're brought into a courtroom. And in the courtroom, God is the judge. And it's not a jury trial, so the judge alone is going to make the judgment, the verdict. And how does he make his verdict? He makes a verdict based on evidence. He will render a verdict or a judgment based on the evidence he receives. Now, in comes the prosecutor. And the prosecutor is both our internal conscience and Satan, who's called an accuser. And he comes in from the back of the courtroom, and he comes in with all of these huge, not the small filing cabinets, the big floor-to-ceiling fi you know, filing cabinets that have files of everything you as the defendant have done in your life. Every action, every thought, every word, every deed, every attitude, every deception, every self-deception, everything. And we're sitting there, and we know we're done. We know we're not sufficient. We know we are guilty and unacceptable. And the prosecutor presents the evidence to the judge. But then in walks the defense attorney, and his name is Jesus. And he presents evidence to the judge. And the judge opens the first file, and the file contains the legal, historical, objective evidence of the cross. And the judge looks at it, and he looks at the evidence, and he makes a verdict, paid in full. And he looks at every, other fi every file of everything you've been accused of, and every one says, paid in full. Paid in full, paid in full. And he renders a judgment based on the evidence of the sacrificial death of the defense attorney, the advocate as your substitute, you are forgiven. And you go, that's great. You're non-condemnable, but that's not acceptable yet. And the defense attorney says, wait, there's more. And he brings in another set of filing cabinets. And the judge opens it, and inside the filing cabinets are the evidence of Jesus' perfect, righteous life. Every word, every thought, every attitude, his complete love of God with every ounce of his heart, soul, mind, strength, every ounce of with perfect wisdom, loving his neighbor as himself, fulfilling the demands of the law, and now, the judge makes a verdict, and it says, accepted, welcomed. That's the doctrine of justification. Big word that basically means it's a legal, objective declaration, a status that God confers upon you, that based on the evidence of Jesus' perfect, righteous life and sacrificial death on the cross, you are declared by God as forgiven and righteous. And we receive that, that status, that position, merely by grace. We receive that. It's a gift. Are you good enough? No. But Jesus is good enough. And you're declared good enough in Him. Are you adequate? Are you sufficient? Are you acceptable? 
in yourself? No, but Jesus is. That's how God has accepted you. But even that, the acceptance goes even further. Because it says God has adopted you into his family. Tim Keller puts it, he says, the image of adoption tells us that our relationship with God is based completely on a legal act by the father. You don't win a father. You don't negotiate for a parent. Adoption is a legal act on the part of the father. It is very expensive and costly only for him. There is nothing the son does to win or earn the status. It is simply received. That's why John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, Behold, see what kind of love, what manner of love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God. And then he goes on to say, and so you are. It's almost like he goes on to say, you're really not going to believe this. This is really too good to be true, and so it really is real. The discipline we have to learn in our lives is beholding, seeing with the eyes of our heart more deeply the kind of love the Father has for us. To free us up from having to strive all the time, work so hard, perform so hard, put up masks, put up faces, not be ourselves, not be real, be scared to death to be vulnerable. We have to receive the acceptance of God through Christ that we're his children, and then we can offer that to one another. When you know you're safe with God, you can be safe for others. And friends, what kind of community is that? That's a foundation of hope. But Paul goes on from there, and I'll be brief. I wanted to, that first point was the longer point. You have good news. This is a much shorter point. Because Paul, he, he kind of gives the punchline in verse 7. Therefore, accept one another as God has accepted you. Wow, if we could do that, that would offer the world something unique. And then, it's almost as if Paul's going, why aren't we more transformed? Why doesn't this change us more? Why do we still struggle with this? Why this aversion to this good news? And it's because we doubt God's goodness. We are the children of our first parents, Adam and Eve, who sin in the garden. We, was it rebellion? Yes. Did they do what they weren't supposed to do? Yes. But it was so much more. Think about the sin in the garden. God gave them everything. They had everything. I can't imagine how incredible it was. And yet, what was the temptation of the serpent in the garden? Did God really say? What's he insinuating when he says, did God really say? Is God really good? Would God really withhold something from your happiness? And from then on, it put this seed, it planted this seed of doubting the goodness of God that we inherited from our first parents and continues today. And so Paul gives the Roman believers and he gives us the faithfulness of hope, the faithfulness of God to encourage them. Look with me at verse 8, he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised 
That means he served a servant, the circumcised was Israel, to show God's truthfulness. The purpose was, I know you're doubting God's goodness, I'm going to show you God's truthfulness. And we're going to do that in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then look at what Paul does. He expects that we're going to know our Bible. He expected the original readers and hearers of his letter to know their Bible. And for them, the Bible is the Old Testament and he's basically telling us, you can't understand the letter to the Romans. In fact, you can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. Because as one commentator put it, beginning in verse 9, he quotes passage after passage to show that God always intended to bring the nations of the world into equal fellowship with his chosen people, Israel. He's declaring to the Romans, Christ is the world's true Lord. Christ is the hope of the world. And he's doing so in a context. This is amazing. He's writing to Rome. That's the capital city. Who was the emperor of the Roman Empire? Nero. Last I heard, not really a friendly sort of guy. I mean, I'm not a historian, like I'm not a musician. But what I know about Nero, not the kind of guy you want to sit down and watch a football game with. He's really not that good of a guy. And here's Paul saying, Nero's a sham. Jesus is the world's true Lord. Talk about gutsy. And so he declares to the Romans, he says, that even though Israel looks like it's failed, and God's faithfulness has been challenged and called into question, Paul goes on to demonstrate God's faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's interesting because the Old Testament was divided into three parts. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Paul quotes from all three parts. In verse 9, he quotes from Psalm 18. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. The psalmist is celebrating God's victory, and his vision of worship includes the nations. Then in verse 10, he goes to the law. He quotes from Deuteronomy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. In verse 11, he quotes from Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. And in verse 12, he goes to the prophets, and he goes to one of his favorites, Isaiah, and Isaiah chapter 11. And of course, Jesse is the father of King David. And as one writer put it, Isaiah is referring back to verse 1, where the Messiah, Jesus, will be a fresh branch, branch growing out of the old royal root after it had appeared to be cut down. And when he says, he who arises to rule the Gentiles, it doesn't mean he will simply emerge, but the word that is used in the version Paul quotes is one of the two regular ones he and other early Christians used for the resurrection itself. Think all the way back to the first chapter of Romans where Paul said that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, the Messiah, through the resurrection. This commentator says it was always so that through Israel, God would call people of every nation into the one family of salvation and praise. See, what is needed to bring us hope? It is not some self-help program. It is not a self-improvement plan. It is not what our culture says in terms of self-determination 
Make yourself who you want to be. Choose who you are and who you want to be. No, hope comes from God's chosen, the embodiment of the living God, beginning a whole new world and creating a new humanity to inhabit and represent this new world. And that's why he closes, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Friends, I hope, may this be our prayer. May this be what we pray for LOPC, for the church here in the Lake Country, and for the world.